0: Okay, well, thank you very much for the, for the invitation to, to speak to you today. Um, as Bert just said, it's, I think it's very important to have, have these debates now, even when some of the, the technology is not there yet, because you can bet it will be there soon. So we actually have to be um, having this conversation and involving as many people as possible in that conversation, um, including, of course, the, the, the public. Publics, wherever they are. So I want to sort of run through a little bit of background first, and then then get into some of the technical issues. um, And then I will, along the way, discuss um, practical and and ethical issues. I'm just waiting for Ah, that. So, um, of course, um, humans have been manipulating genes in, in animals and plants for probably many thousands of years um, through selective breeding. And, um, you know, we've, we've done this for a, for a purpose because we want to have better, better food, better companion animals, um, uh, many different reasons. Uh, and, of course, during the same time, human genes and genomes have altered um, due to selection for specific traits, uh, which have been, it was happened in response to, for example, changes in climate or in changes in, in food, such as uh, lactose tolerance. You can you can uh, plot how how uh, tolerance to lactose has um, increased in the human populations in particular areas over time. But this has been due to natural rather than artificial selection, and of course um, all of this went on with. Uh, without any knowledge of genes and, and DNA. so I wanted to first just give just a, a this little potted history of our ability to genetically alter animals, because this is the most relevant to, to, to humans. So of course, in the, in the early 1970s, uh, recombinant DNA came about, and, and that was with restriction enzymes, uh, DNA ligases, recombinant um, DNA techniques in bacteria. Uh, and then, of course, DNA sequencing, uh, obviously important to be able to know what you are manipulating. And um, there were, of course, big debates around around this time um, about uh, what should be done, uh, how you would, how you should do it uh, in terms of recombinant DNA. There was the famous Asilomar conference, which which um, uh, led to a moratorium that moratorium was sort of probably useful uh, in a number of ways. It was probably more useful in terms of um, making sure that there were no laws passed in a hurry to stop things happening. Um, Although, of course, what it did mean is that the the techniques were developed in a couple of labs in the US rather than than everywhere. So it was a little bit restrictive. Um, Anyway, Almost every new technology uh, since 1973, it's prompted a debate about the possibility of genetically modifying humans. Um, that uh, debate intensified, of course, with the birth of the first IVF baby, uh, Louise Brown, in 1978. Um, so, uh, f- around that time, or shortly after, we then began to have actually methods to manipulate uh, the genomes of of animals and I'm focusing initially on mice but this is uh, where most of the techniques first uh, first started but then they've they they used in, in many other uh, mammalian species of course so the first one really was transgenic mice where you simply um, in, inject the dna into the fertilized egg into the one of one of the pronuclei in fertilized egg uh, For example of a rat uh, mice carrying a, a rat growth hormone transgene they're about much bigger uh, this is um, a very useful technique. In fact, I still use it in my lab because it's a very practical f- for some types of questions as a way of answering, answering particular questions. But it's really quite an inefficient method. And of course, the manipulation that you actually end up doing is very um, haphazard. So the gene you've introduced can integrate anywhere in the genome. It can cause mutations. It can hit other genes. Um, uh, its activity is not, not uh, regulated correctly often. The, the next sort of way of doing this uh, came a few years later and that's based on using very potent um, mouse embryonic stem cells which you can uh, culture, you can manipulate in vitro, you can alter genes and then inject the cells back into the early embryo to end up with a, a chimeric mice and then transmit through the germline the, the genetic change of introduced, and this is just mice expressing uh, green fluorescent protein. Um, but again, initially this was just sort of allowing you to do, add things in a sort of random way. Um, coincident with this, all this, there was a better understanding of radiation and chemical induced mutations in mice uh, uh, and in cancer treatments, of course, in, in humans. And there was the first beginnings of gene therapy uh, making use of viral vectors. So again, this is using a viral vector to carry a, a particular gene. Um, into cells or, or, or people. Um, these are, uh, you know, can be fairly efficient because you're using a virus which can be, can be a very efficient way of getting things into cells. But of course it's, it's rather haphazard again because these can integrate at random. The control of the gene expression is, is often not very good. Um, it was uh, late 1980s when we were first able to start doing precise alterations of mouse uh, genomes, and that was using techniques generally referred to as gene targeting by homologous recombination. Um, so basically, you 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 rely on rare events of homologous recombination and methods to select those uh, rare events. And by rare, it's often less than one in a million cells will will this have occurred in. Um, it's quite a complex and uh, long process because, uh, again, you're starting with with cells in culture. You have to find the right cells. Uh, you then have to introduce them back into chimeras and breed from those chimeras. Uh, also it's not appropriate for many um, mammalian species for which you don't have embryonic stem cells or simple ability to introduce them back into the early embryo. Um, the next sort of technique that of course created a huge fuss uh, was somatic cell nuclear transfer or, or cloning uh, with the, um, the birth of uh, Dolly Rishi. Um this um, is relevant because, of course, it's actually one of the, the main methods still used today of uh, manipulating the, the genes or genomes of farm animals. So you can start with, for example, a, a skin cell, do your um, genetic manipulation and culture on those, on those cells, um, and then you essentially clone from those by taking the nucleus of your somatic cell, putting it into an enucleated egg, and then allowing development to proceed. Um, And then an associated technique, which is relevant to mention, of course, is that uh, around this time, and based on the... Well, in 2006, um, around this time, time, because um, of the work of uh, the cloning of of animals, plus other things, suggested that uh, maybe you can directly reprogram, say, a skin cell into a pluripotent stem cell. And this led Shinya Yamanaka to derive um, induced proprotein stem cells, iPS cells, uh, which again in the mouse at least you can can do this. You can put these back into into early embryos. Um, You can have these derived from, from humans in a patient specific way. So there's lots of advantages of iPS cells. Um, Another method that was being developed in parallel, and I'm just going to spend a little bit longer on this deserves a whole slide because it's really really very relevant, uh, we're going to talk about germline modifications, is, um, uh, so Ralph Brinster and his colleagues were able to culture spermatogonial stem cells from the testes of mice, so these are the the cells that uh, will ultimately give rise to to sperm in in the testes. You can culture these cells, you can manipulate them in culture, alter their genes, uh, and then reintroduce them back into a testis and they will give rise to, to sperm which you can use to fertilize eggs. Um, and this is, uh, that has been mice uh, manipulated this way, this is just strain rat pups, uh, expressing again green fluorescent protein that have been changed this way. The methods have worked in non-human primates, so macaques, so the, the, these methods can work. And because now there's a lot of um, activity in my own lab is involved a little bit with this to see whether you can derive um, eggs and sperm entirely in vitro, beginning with, for example, patient-specific induced pluripotent stem cells. There's lots of good reasons for doing this research to try and um, uh, solve problems of, of infertility, for example. Um, but this obviously provides another route to get into the germ. So with each each new method of manipulating genes in mammals, uh, the same questions have arisen about the possibility of using them to treat or avoid genetic disease. Make designer babies. uh, Practice eugenics. Uh, Headlines get more and more horrible. Um, But always it's been possible for for people like me, the scientists, to say, this is ridiculous. The methods are far too inefficient and unsafe uh, to, to even contemplate applying these to humans. But at least two areas of science have now opened up these debates again. Um, so first of all, that's the, our ability to actually understand genes, genomes and genetic variation in, in humans. So we now have m- many, many uh, you know, thousands of, of human genomes and we understand them a lot better than we used to. Uh, we still need to do more, but uh, we, we now know a lot about um, Genes and d- diseases caused by genetic uh, mutations, for example. Um, uh, so we have that knowledge, so why did not we use that knowledge to solve some of our own problems? That's how the argument goes. Um, as I say, we've had these methods since the early 1980s, but they were unsafe. However, now, uh, of course, we have these new, um, precise, and efficient means of altering DNA sequences provided by. The methods of, of genome editing. Um, so this, these methods generally make use of endogenous DNA repair mechanisms. Uh, it most often requires uh, you have a, what some people refer to as molecular scissors, basically a, a nuclear nuclease enzyme, as a way of making a cut in the DNA, um, and often that will be a, a double-stranded cut. You need a mechanisms. Again, some people refer to this as a homing device, uh, a mechanism to recognize specific DNA sequences that you want to cut. Um, these can be derived from DNA binding proteins, such as transcription factors, uh, or from uh, RNA, which can be complementary to the particular DNA sequence and bind to it. And if you want to make more than a simple mutation, then you need a, a template, usually a DNA template which has homologous arms, so arms that are going to recognize um, sequences flanking the, the, the part of the genome that you want to alter uh, to allow homology-directed repair. So uh, this slides is a bit complex. If you don't want to listen to the complexity, don't bother. It's just take the take-home messages that, first of all, um, so there are different methods of doing genome editing uh, relying, which rely also on either um, proteins, which is the zinc finger or tailins, tail nucleases. Um, these are sort of modular designed in the lab uh, um, such that you, they, each little block recognizes a specific uh, um, set of nucleotides. Um, and then these carry uh, a nuclease, in this case foc one which makes just a one cut in DNA, so you have one single stranded cut. So you have to have two of these, uh, which adds to the specificity but makes it a little bit more complex. So these will cut the DNA at this site. Um, And then, of course, you have the RNA-guided genome editing, uh, particularly provided by CRISPR-Cas9, which is the most commonly used uh, in in labs now. Um, So this relies on um, a guide RNA, uh, which you make complementary sequence of about 20 nucleotides to the the site that you want to to cut. Um, And then the other part of the RNA essentially provides a link to the nuclease, which is Cas9, which can make a double-stranded cut in the DNA. Um, so the, everyone's got very excited about the CRISPR-Cas9, even though the other methods are, are still fine and work and actually are being used in some clinical trials, as mentioned by Burke. Um, so the reason why we, we like CRISPR-Cas9 is because the components are very simple to make. Um, the guide RNAs, the, the, the nuclease, and DNA templates. In fact, you can just order everything up. You don't even have to make them yourself. So. Um, they're relatively simple to introduce into cells or into early embryos. Uh, they are highly specific. Um, at least they can be highly specific if you've done your research properly and. and uh, uh, tested things appropriately. There is still this issue that people raise about off-target events and that certainly, these can, this is where the the enzyme has cut the wrong DNA sequence, not the DNA sequence that you were trying to target and led to uh, some other mutation there, for example. Um, but if you've done things really well, off-target events just don't happen. Um, that's, that's becoming the experience of, of, of lots of labs. Um, there's still issues about whether the correct on target event has happened, and we can talk about that if people want. They're very highly efficient. Um, in some experiments, for example, in my own lab, using this with mice injecting components into unfertilized eggs or into fertilized eggs, we can get up to hundred percent of the resulting pups carry the genetic manipulation. However, there is this issue which I'll talk about a little bit more about mosaicism, i will talk about that later where not every cell um, has been altered appropriately. There's the ability to multiplex. You can target multiple genes at the same time. It's very versatile. So you can use it to alter DNA, including small deletions or insertions, larger deletions insertions, substitutions from single base pairs up to many, many kilobases. You can also um, uh, essentially inactivate the the Cas9 uh, nuclease uh, and then link it to other proteins, which can modify the activity of genes. So, without actually altering the genome sequence, you can say link on a transcriptional activator or a repressor, or a modifier of chromatin, to manipulate gene activity uh, in a, in a quite precise way, which has um, lots of potential uses. All right. This again, very very briefly. Say ignore all the details if you don't care. But, um, so this is for um, making uh, an inactivating mutation. This is the simplest way of doing the genome editing. And this is relying on a uh, DNA repair process called non-homology end joining, NHEJ. Um, and this leads to small insertions and small deletions. Essentially, you use your CRISPR-Cas9, uh, your guide and your Cas9, to simply make a, a double-stranded cut in the DNA. And this mechanism which is of DNA repair, which is in most cells most of the time. Uh, simply tries to stick the two broken ends back together, but often makes a little mistake, uh, leading to a few base pairs deletion, most often, or sometimes an insertion. So, if this is done in targeted to a coding region of a gene, it's going to create a mutation, and that can be that is used a lot in the la- in labs to to try and understand the function of genes. It can also be used in some cases, potentially clinically, uh, for example, with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Um, because you have lots of, lots of exons, each coding a little block of a protein. And if you have a mutation that um, uh, basically is a nonsense mutation that stops the protein being made from that point, by doing exon skipping, uh, you can then end up with a, a protein that is almost normal function. And so this is being proposed to use to treat somatically uh, Duchenne-Muscular dystrophy patients, for example. Um, to exchange um, sequences is, of course, very, very useful uh, and potentially very important method. This relies on a different DNA repair mechanism called homology-directed repair. So in this case, you may use your, your guide RNA and your Cas9 to make your double shiny break, but you've also introduced a DNA template which has homology to either side of the cut. Um, and this basically will allow um, uh, any sequence which is inserted in between to be uh, integrated or replace the the one that's there already. So you can make, in this example, it's made an eight base pair substitution, but you can do anything from one base pair uh, up to many, many kilobases. Um, I I forgot to mention that these, um, the Cas9 enzymes require a so-called PAM sequence, uh, which is a specific little three nucleotides uh, within the DNA. Uh, That's important in the bacteria, of course, where the system originally came from, to allow specificity so you you don't chop up your own DNA, uh, only the DNA of incoming um, viruses. Um, This restricts a little bit sometimes where you can do your edit, um, uh, but I'll come on to solutions for that in a second. Um, A newer method, uh, which is called base editing, uh, which I think is very clever. It relies on different DNA repair mechanisms, but in fact, in this case, uh, you're not actually you're not making a double-strand cut in the DNA. Um, Essentially, you have a Cas9 with inactivated um, enzyme activity, so dead Cas9, and it's linked to, um, in this case, um, a cytosine deaminase, which essentially chemically alters um, uh, a C to a T, and then. So it goes first through a, a U, uh, which is then endogenous processes, then turn the U into a T. Uh, you now have a little little mismatch. And you have DNA mismatch repair mechanisms, see that. And then they substitute the G to an A, which then allows the DNA to pair again properly. So this is um, really useful, because it could use, be used to create, correct or create uh, point mutations in the in the coding region, or in the regulatory region, or wherever you want. And given that, um, perhaps 50% of all Mendelian genetic disease in humans are caused by single base pair changes, you can imagine that this is going to be a very powerful um, methodology. Um, David Liu, who's done the work on developing this, has, has managed to um, chemically engineer um, enzymes from scratch, basically, to allow... Uh, not just that the, the first sort of transversion, which I showed you, which is a sort of normal mimicking a normal process, um, but you can now also do A T to, to G C. Um, he's a very clever, very clever guy. Uh, a very recent paper. He's used his sort of chemical um, modification of, of um, enzymes to actually modify Cas9 itself to now make um, a variety of new Cas9 variants which can make use of different um, PAM sequences to interact with DNA. And so now uh, with this you can, and it's very efficient, um, perhaps even more efficient than the original Cas9. So it's the the green bars here if people want to look at the details. So you can now target pretty much any site in the genome using these these variants uh, very efficiently. So, these methods are sufficiently precise and efficient that the old arguments um, may well no longer apply. Perhaps we can use these with with humans. And as we know, they're being used um, in animals and in plants uh, to do all sorts of things. And I won't go into this because that's really, we're going to talk about that later in the meeting, I guess. Um, So, what about what can we do with this? Uh, This is my little disclaimer, right? Uh, I'd first like to stress that I would be failing my duty as a scientist if I did not suggest what might become possible with with these new techniques. Um, These include some applications involving heritable germline alterations that might be achievable in the near future. Others will be a long way off or perhaps never possible. But just because I'm voicing these suggestions doesn't mean I advocate them, my little disclaimer. Um, not, and of course, not only does our scientific knowledge fall uh, short in many cases, but the decision as whether or not to go ahead and with any specific application is not one for scientists to make alone. So, um, I'm going to make some comments which are based really uh, uh, in the context of um, this report from, from the National Academies of Sciences. So I was on the, the committee that, that worked on this. Um, which was, a, which although it was based out of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, was really quite an international committee, uh, unlike most of their studies that they, they publish. Um, so, to, to actually allow the 22 of us to have good discussions, we we figured it was figured fairly early on that because um, there are lots of different backgrounds, lots of different views, that we needed some principles to begin with. And um, these are all obvious principles, um, but if you start with these, so everything from promoting well-being, transparency, fairness, etc., then uh, we, we it allowed us to have our discussions properly. But it also um, this can form a framework for any nation that's considering governance of human genome editing. Um, in the report itself, we go into a lot more detail about these principles and how they might apply to. Um, genome editing um, for clinical purposes. So as mentioned by Bert, the three basic uh, applications of genome editing with human cells: so research, sort of basic research, um, clinical, and then two types of clinical work: somatic or germline. Um, of course, um, as you mentioned, the, these techniques are being used around the world to try and understand um, human biology uh, in culture in labs. So the role of specific genes in different contexts. Um, you can you try and use a, a mutation, for example, use a um, induced peripotent stem cells, which can be derived from a patient. You can see whether you can correct the mutation, provide a good control. You can try and study in vitro um, human genetic diseases. You can use these cells for screening drugs, et cetera. So this is already common um, with a variety of human cell systems in vitro. These can, uh, apart from your embryonic stem cells, you've got organ-specific stem cells. Of course, you can use some of these organ-specific stem cells to make organoids. Um, Embryonic stem cells you can use to make um, a variety of things. Uh, You can even make complex tissues, such as cortical brain structures, optic cups, kidney-like structures and things. So you can do a lot of things in vitro. If you can use these for various human cell types in vitro, why not uh, use them to study also pre implantation embryos and other germline <coughs> cells? Um, so, this is the um, in some places is a little controversial, but um, in the UK it is it is permitted to use these methods uh, on early human embryos. Um, and so, my co- this is from my colleague Kathy Nyken at the, the Francis Crick Institute. Where I work and um, She's got into this basically because realizing that uh, most of what we understand about early human development is actually not based on human development at all. It's based on the mouse. Uh, Yet we know that the mouse development is actually quite different from human development. They may superficially look similar at these very early stages, but the timing is different. Things happen much faster in the mouse. Um, If you look uh, uh, at certainly just after implantation, the embryos look really quite different. Uh, so um, they d- different shapes. Uh, you have different um, organization of the various layers of the embryo. Uh, you have cell types that are different. So in the mouse, you have these trophoblast giant cells, which are responsible for, in- of the, for the implantation itself and for then interaction of the embryo with the uterine environment. Uh, in the human, you don't have trophoblast giant cells. You have a completely different cell type called syncytiotrophoblast. And, and if you look at in detail in RNA expression, uh, you can see many, many, many differences between them, including in genes that we know are vital for uh, early mouse development. Some of these genes aren't active at all in the humans. There have to be different genes and pathways involved. And so that's what got her to, to doing this. Um, of course, we know from um, human IVF that humans are really actually quite bad at making children. You wouldn't think it with all the children that are on the planet. But um, uh, you you lose um, about 50% um, in pre-implantation development. Uh, you transfer those, you lose about 50% at implantation. And then post-implantation, again, you, you lose another 50%. So you end up with only a small proportion actually making it through. And we don't understand that. But perhaps a lot of it's due to uh, problems uh, in, for example, these outer layers, these trifecta embryos. So this is Cathy, um, one of her blastocysts. The, the green cells here are the inner cell mass. These are the, of the, the future embryo. Most of the embryo, of course, is at these stages are, for, are extra embryonic tissues. So she wanted to ask what's the role of a particular gene called OCT4, which we know is really important in, in mouse development. If you mutate the OP4 gene in early mouse embryos, they make blastocysts, but then they fail. Um, and they fail because you don't get the derivatives of, you don't get these pluripotent um, cells in, in the embryo. Um, the embryo stages. When she, she did this, she did a lot of work to make sure that the methods she was using were the most efficient possible before she started with the human embryos. Um, and basically, to cut a long story short, she found that uh, OCT4 is needed to reach the blastocyst stage. So these are um, the controls, where she's just injected the, the Cas9 enzyme by itself. But if she injects the enzyme plus the guide RNA, she finds that uh, the drop off of embryos during the period from one cell to, to blastocyst stage is, 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 much, is far more. She's losing about half of them. Um, and actually, the blastocysts that form are not very good. In fact, they're pretty awful. Um, and it turns out that the ones that make it to blast as a stage are mosaic, so they still have a few cells expressing OCT4. Uh, but the ones that fail uh, around this stage uh, have none at all. So OCT4 acts earlier in human embryos than it does in the mouse, and she could show that it was essential for generation of the, the outer layer, the trophacted end layer. so layer um, it, lots of details of this. Um, she found the most efficient way of doing this. Um, this was simply to create um, these small in, indels, small mutations. She couldn't find any off-target um, events. Um, let's say over 50% of, of injected zygotes gave, gave embryos with no OG4 uh, allele at, in any cell. Um, uh, these embryos failed to make blastocysts at all. The ones that did make blastocysts but did so poorly um, had at least one cell expressing OCT4. So these are mosaic for genome editing. Um, and the other conclusion from the, her results was that injection shortly after or coincident with fertilization is more likely to give non mosaic, completely null embryos. She wasn't creating embryos, she was just taking what she got, but some of them were very early post fertilization. Um, So a number of of implications. Um, This was the first time genome editing had been used to study gene function in human embryos uh, and it revealed an important function for this particular gene. Um, Understanding genes in early development should advance our understanding of human biology. In turn this knowledge could lead to improvements in stem cell biology, um, IVF treatment, perhaps help uh, understand some causes and prevent some causes of miscarriage. And then, of course, you could apply your knowledge uh, using other methods. You don't have to um, necessarily use genome editing to, for example, prevent miscarriage. So are there um, any cons, anything against doing this type of research? Personally, I don't think so, um, as long as the work is conducted well and with appropriate um, ethical approval and oversight. Genome editing in this context is really just another method to ask questions about the biology of early human embryos. Um, it's not, it is no real different from any other type of research that has led to, in fact, IVF itself and associated methods such as pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, PGD. Um, Kathy's work, I think, was done extremely well and set the standard of how this type of research should be done. And that includes openness. So all along she made her intentions all the issues to do with obtaining permission to do the work and all the data public as soon as it was reasonable to do so. Um, but what about some people still say, well, there are concerns. So first of all, it may be necessary to create embryos for research, something that's currently permitted in only, uh, I think, eight countries in the world. So most countries do not, that have regulation in this area don't permit it. Um, however, it can be difficult to obtain uh, Fertilized eggs or zygotes now from IVF clinics, because most are cultured beyond um, early stages to see to try and choose the best that's developing. Um, it can be important to know exactly when fertilization took place for your experiment. Um, and it looks like to avoid mosaicism, the earlier you do it, the better. So why not introduce the genome editing components um, during uh, fertilization? Uh, and the most common method now used in in IVF labs is into cytoplasmic sperm injection or ICSI. So it would be easy to do that. Uh, Another concern is people say, well, it could lead to a significant um, increase in the number of embryos used for research, after all there are many genes to study. Um, uh, That's one reason why it's important to share intentions as well as results and there's a sort of campaign to try and link up all those who want to do this type of research uh, for that reason. More concerns, it might lead to an extension of the 14-day limit on embryo research, because of course the longer you can keep your embryos going, the more different things you can study. Well actually there's pressure to do that anyway, at least in the UK and other countries. Um, And of course the other is this sort of slippery slope argument that improved efficiency and versatility of of genome editing in early embryos for for this sort of basic research may facilitate attempts to use the methods clinically to make uh, heritable Genetic alterations, but of course, actually, it would be unethical not to use the most efficient methods for research. So, um, uh, and then we're going to talk about actually, well, would it be wrong to make heritable um, g- genetic alterations? So, mandatory. I'm not going to spend much time on just to say that this is obviously this is already ongoing, on, ongoing. Um, uh, and there are a number of trials. I think about 15 trials now in different places in the US, in China, and uh, at least one being launched in Europe. Um, it's um, much better than the in theory in, than conventional gene therapy because um, you are altering the gene itself, uh, which means that it's going to be active in the right place at the right time. You're not going to be affecting other genes, hopefully. Um, the two approaches of doing this, so there's outside the body, ex vivo, so you take cells out like bone marrow stem cells for example, um, and these can be edited and these are already being used for example, cancer treatments, so the CAR T cells, or to try and treat patients with HIV. Uh, there are a couple of trials being started which are trying to edit um, uh, bone marrow stem cells for things like sickle cell disease or thalassemias. So you can edit the cells outside the body and then put them back. Um, And then there's uh, a variety of approaches to try and do this directly in the body, so in vivo. Again, you probably have to use some efficient method of delivery, such as a virus. Uh, This becomes technically more challenging, but there are um, proposals to use genome editing to deal with metabolic diseases or hemophilia. Uh, It turns out you can get components into the liver quite efficiently. Example: edi- Editing muscle cells for muscular dystrophy, and there's a trial in China which is trying to um, mutate uh, papilloma virus in epithelial cells to reduce cancer risk. Um, I'm going to raise the thorny issue of enhancement now, um, because of course you can do somatic, you can do enhancement using somatic um, genome editing. Um, so this is a, an important issue. So, of course, it's very hard actually to define really what you mean by enhancement. Um, um, So, this was our National Academies report. We came up with this sort of definition making changes beyond ordinary human capacities or anything outside of treatment, prevention of disease, and disability. Um, There's, of course, significant public concern about fairness if this was available to some people uh, only, um, and also about. Creating pressure to seek out enhancements. So if you know the Joneses next door have it, why shouldn't I have it? And all these things. Um, but of course, many other types of enhancement are tolerated or even encouraged: uh, better nutrition, education, cosmetic procedures, etc. Um, and then sometimes it is actually difficult to to know whether you're really doing something that's a therapy, uh, so curing muscular dystrophy. Versus becoming stronger than usual, um, but it seems at the moment that the range of possible uses uh, of a pr- at least a- therapies that should be approved for enhancement seems rather uh, limited, um, and particularly enhancement is unlikely to offer benefits sufficient to offset the risks of using these procedures at, at, at this time, and so these are the recommendations from the report essentially. So this sh- this shouldn't. Shouldn't proceed uh, certainly at this time, and you shouldn't do it certainly without extensive unput extensive uh, public input, to actually uh, get a, an opinion of what would be appropriate and acceptable. Now, this is um, this is something that was concerning us during the report. We did um, interview re- relative um, members of these communities. Um, we didn't actually put much in the report, but uh, it's become more relevant in a way because of particularly of this, this person, Josiah Zainer, um, who was um, filmed um, at an event injecting himself with components to mutate the myostatin gene. So if the myostatin gene is mutated, which occurs naturally in, in some cattle, breeds of cattle, uh, in, in, in people, um, then you get this double muscle phenotype. So you have very chunky animals or, or babies with this, with this mutation. So as he was injecting his arm saying he wanted to get bigger muscles, um, this is so stupid and you cannot believe it. Um, the chances of actually doing it is significant, injecting the components into his arm uh, are rather minimal and of course the first thing first thing will happen is he will get an immune response to, to Cas9 if he doesn't have it already and actually probably end up destroying his muscles rather than um, improving Anyway, he now regrets doing this and um, so uh, um, hopefully his regret will stop other people doing it, but I doubt it. Um, So the human, we'll we'll go on to talk about germline intervention. So the human genome, of course, is not static, as you will know, with about 40 to 80 base pair substitutions and a few small insertions or deletions each generation. Of course, the biggest risk to the number of, of uh, point mutations you're going to have is the age of the father. So it's 80 for an old man and 40 for a young man. So, um, Given the size of the genome, um, and then many of these mutations will be silent, this degree of change seems small, but of course it, it is what has contributed to, to human variation, um, constantly to selection for specific traits during evolution. Um, And of course, it contributes to the burden of of genetic disease um, leading to all these issues. So what can we do about inherited genetic disease? How about deliberately altering our genes and genomes? Can we avoid genetic disease in our children? Certainly not always. We're never going to be able to to deal with spontaneous de novo mutations. Um, More contentious questions. Uh, Could we genetically enhance ourselves or our children? Can we alter our own evolution? Should we do any of these? So, possible methods. Um, I've mentioned really both of them. So, you could, the first method I want to discuss very briefly, of course, is um, using, for example, spermatogonial stem cells or uh, other cells that could give rise to um, eggs or sperm, uh, such as IPS cells. So, and the idea of in in vitro derived gametes. So if you could do it in a stem cell type that you can grow efficiently, you could verify that you have the exact edit you want to have made before you then try and turn these into sperm or eggs and then embryos. Um, as I say, it's been done using spermatogonial stem cells in mice, rats and the macaques, um, uh, and, it, and it definitely works. Uh, so how about doing it with humans? The, the other method, of course, is to, as I mentioned with Cathy's work, is to directly introduce the components into the fertilized egg, um, perhaps so coincident with injecting the sperm. Um, in this case, it's going to be much harder to verify the edits, uh, unless you know already that you're going to have about 100% efficiency. This seems uh, a little, you know, there's a, there's a concern here. Um, so, you could, of course, always check what you've got, you would think, by using something like PGD. Um, however, uh, if you have any mosaicism, then your PGD becomes unreliable because you don't know whether you're going to take an edited cell or an unedited cell from your early embryo. Um, but all three now um, main genome editing approaches have been used in early human embryos. So as I mentioned Cathy's work, that was just simply using the non-homology end joining me- mechanism. Um, uh, there's been several papers published out of China trying to use um, homology-directed repair, uh, one in the US, uh, which I'll mention again in a second. Um, and the base editing has also been used. The base editing actually is a really powerful method of, of doing genetic alterations because you don't have to worry about incorrect on-target events. Uh, You're not making a double-stranded break in the DNA, so you don't have to worry about the other methods, the other mechanisms of DNA repair messing it up. So often if we're trying to do, let's say, homology-directed repair, you'll get the correct change in one allele, but the other one may carry a mutation that's been introduced by non-homology end joining. With the base editing, you don't have to worry about that. It's a very precise way of... To do um, the methods are not yet safe to use. I will stress that. We still need to do more research. But it does seem inevitable that um, genome editing via either of these approaches will be made to work efficiently uh, and probably safely. Um, in fact, uh, Shukat Metalipov published this, this paper, a high profile paper last um, autumn in, last summer, um, which was using, he was reporting that he could get homology repair to occur with about 100% efficiency in human embryos. So no mosaicism. Um, now, there's some problems with this paper and they still haven't been resolved publicly because uh, it's quite likely that they didn't actually have homology director repair. They just had um, basically a large deletions so they couldn't detect uh, the mutant copy of the gene because it just wasn't there. Um, and that needs to be resolved um, in before we understand really what happened here. But anyway, when might it be appropriate to use um, genome editing rather than alternative methods such as PGD uh, to deal with um, heritable mutations? Um, Of course, there have been many issues that um, uh, have been raised about the possibility of altering human genomes um, in in this way. Um, People say, well, Genetic changes may be inherited by the next generation, but actually that's not necessarily a bad thing, that's a good thing. Um, the multi-generational risks, for example. Well, but there could be benefits too. Um, the need for a possible difficulty of long-term follow-up. That occurs with all sorts of interventions uh, that we, we have, that we do, uh, on future children. Like. Lack of consent by affected persons. Um, again, I think that's a red herring. Uh, we do all sorts of things and don't ask the, 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 the fetus or the, the young child uh, whether they're happy with what you're doing to them. Um, the degree of intervention in nature. Um, nature's pretty bad. Uh, we can sometimes do better than nature, we think. Um, there's the issue about whether we can, uh, of the acceptance of children who are born with disabilities, will this reduce our tolerance to, towards people who have disabilities? I don't think so. I think um, as techniques such as PGD have been introduced, which allows you to do all this stuff anyway to, to select embryos with genetic disease, is coincidence with our much better acceptance of individuals with, um, with disabilities. Uh, and then of course the step towards enhancement for designer babies, we'll talk about that later. So um, realistic possibility that's driven by thousands, the idea of thousands of inherited diseases. Um, let's talk about PGD just briefly. Um, so PGD is is used clinically. Uh, it is not actually um, always very efficient. Uh, in fact, sometimes it's very inefficient, and women have to undergo multiple cycles to in order to find uh, a, an embryo that's not carrying the, the genetic disease. Um, also, some individuals find these these methods unacceptable because. You're, you end up destroying embryos, you're not saving an embryo, you're, you're getting rid of embryos that you don't want. Um, and there are cases where they cannot be used to retain a, a parental genetic connection but avoid having a child with a genetic disease. So let's run through some of those. So there are rare individuals who are homozygous for a, a dominant version of a gene, such as Huntington's disease. Not many, but there are clusters where, where these, these do occur, and they blight families for generations because. Very frequent. Um, there are, of course, rare occasions where both parents are homozygous for recessive mutation. There are some mutations that affect fertility, so you, in fact you have too few embryos, um, and patients um, have to go through multiple, multiple rounds of, of treatment to find disease-free embryo, if ever. Um, I'll mention this one in just a second. For this is savior siblings, where there's more than one harmful mutation or variant allele needs to be uh, checked makes the probability of finding a disease-free embryo very low. Um, some people argue that the genome editing methods may turn out to be much more efficient and perhaps more reliable than PGD. If that's the case, then you shouldn't do PGD. Um, and say some, for some people, it's more acceptable because uh, you rescue the embryos, you don't destroy them. So this is an example of um, Save Your Siblings provided by George Daly um, in, at Harvard where they had a program, and they had eight families enrolling in this. Um, There was a total of 42 IVF cycles, so that's about five cycles per family. That's already a lot. They began with 524 eggs recovered. uh, And you can see the the attrition as you go along this process. In fact, only one baby was born uh, who was uh, appropriate as a savior sibling. So the other seven families, there was no, no baby that could be used. Um, coupling genome genome editing to PGD uh, might have helped in this case. So I'm often asked which gene variants um, might be relevant for correction by germline genome editing. This is really hard to to, to do because you have thing, common diseases such as um, cystic fibrosis, uh, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. These are obvious candidates, and I suspect we will see this. Some research is being done to, for this purpose. But you also have diseases that are generally very rare but occur at high frequencies in specific populations. I already mentioned Huntington's, with things like Tay-Sachs and there are many of these in fact Um, because there are many, many single gene disorders. So perhaps it's actually going to depend on who is standing in front of the clinician asking for help to have a healthy genetic related child. The other important thing to think about is that as our ability to treat patients improves, who have genetic diseases, and that's including conventional methods um, and or somatic gene therapy, there will be many more patients surviving to reproductive ages, who will then want to have children, and they probably won't want to pass on even single uh, abnormal variant of a, of a gene to their children. So if we can. Deal with cystic fibrosis, if we can deal with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, there are going to be many more people who want to um, have children without disease. So, enhancement. Um, So, on this list, we've got a few things which, a couple of things at the top, which are not necessarily enhancement, these are really prevention. So, how about disease resistance to um, guarantee your child won't get an infectious disease or, or cancer? Um, that's not really enhancement. And some people might argue it's a little bit enhancement, but I don't think it is. Um, things like diet, so allowing your children to be tolerant to lactose or gluten, etc. Again, that's just being like other people. It's not really a form of enhancement. What would be enhancement is the ability to obtain nutritional benefit from so- something that we, we don't normally eat, like plastics. be really good for the world, but. Um, uh, um, human traits, physical traits like uh, muscle mass type, height, appearance, etc. Specific characteristics like perfect pitch, longevity, intelligence. Well, these are, these are all wonderful things to try and improve, perhaps. Um, but of course, we don't yet know how to do that. So we know that there are, for example, take height, that there are hundreds of genes involved in height, um, the hundreds of thousands of genes probably involved in intelligence. We know what happens if. if uh, some rare some individuals, of course, have mutations in some of these genes, and they they can have very short stature or they can be um, uh, intellectually compromised uh, to, to a very large degree. So we know how we know how to pay, make people short and stupid, mm-hmm. but but actually we don't know how to make them tall and intelligent. Um, then you've got things like non-human traits, so trivial ones. Uh, I'm not sure it would be particularly nice to have children glowing, glowing green. They might find it cool at discos and things. But I, don't, I don't think so. Um, personally, I think it would be great to be able to see an infrared or ultraviolet, um, so ultra-sensory systems. Um, tolerance to drought, heat, or cold. Well, we might have to do this with, with global climate warm, you know, warming and things, so um, don't throw it out yet. Um, and then, of course, we can make, now make synthetic genes, so we could introduce things which we haven't even thought of yet. Um, so regulations become very important and I'm sure you all know that. So in the US it's not allowed to, to, to do this, um, but only through a little rider made on an appropriations bill which says that the FDA is not allowed to receive any application that would involve um, altering genes in embryos. It's just a, one sentence or something. So if they forgot to put that in one year, it would then become legal in the US. Uh, in Europe, it's pretty much prohibited. Um, uh, but there are other countries uh, with no laws um, at all. Um, in the UK, it required change in the uh, Human Fertilisation and Embryo Act um, via primary legislation to make this permissible. To not to do the research, which we can do, but to uh, transfer any embryos back into a woman. Um, caution is, is needed if you were going to start a clinical trial but our report said that uh, being cautious does not mean prohibition. So we were very against the idea of having any moratorium uh, or any prohib- prohibition. It's much better we felt to uh, allow the research to happen to see really what is possible. Um, Trials might be permitted, uh, but only after much more research to, to uh, meet existing risk-benefit standards which don't yet um, operate. It would have to be done under strict oversight uh, and if the trials were restricted to specific sets of criteria, which would include absence of reasonable alternatives, uh, restriction to prevention of a serious disease or condition. Um, editing only genes that have been convincingly demonstrated to cause or strongly predispose to the disease or condition. Uh, this is sort of an interesting little rider here. So converting such genes to versions that are prevalent in the population, um, meaning this is so you, you're avoiding the idea of enhancement through a, an alternative route by deliberately choosing a rare variant of a gene that's going to give your child uh, some benefit. Um, and then, of course, uh, as with any procedure, um, good preclinical data to say it's likely to be okay. Um, there needs to be a rigorous oversight during clinical trials. Uh, there, needs to be, uh, there needs to at least be plans for long-term multi-generation follow-up. It's difficult to do that, but um, should be built in. Maximum transparency, uh, continued reassessment of both health and societal benefits and risks, uh, with a lot of uh, participation and input by the public reliable oversight mechanisms to prevent extension to uses other than those that are deemed acceptable. Um, and in fact, we said that these um, you should, there should be no attempt to do such a, a trial for her- making a heritable germline change, genetic change, um, without uh, appropriate, uh, appropriate and robust regulations and oversight being uh, in place. Um, there also other, still have a lot of questions, so genome editing, um, uh, you know, what, what uses uh, for genome editing, human clinical applications might be permissible, um, there's a lot of debate ab- about that. What are the safest methods? I talked a little bit about that, we don't really know yet. Um, social justice, a big issue, how can we ensure access of the applications to everyone? Um, one that really worries me is this one, how can we avoid the problems associated with so-called rogue clinics offering unsafe, untested genome editing methods? Um, this is, that could be for somatic or, or germline genome editing. This is a problem that's, that, that's really hit the stem cell field in a big way. Um, there are many IVF clinics around the world, some operating in, in countries with, with almost no, or no uh, regulation. Uh, It's very easy to say, well give me another 10,000 and I'll make a little alteration in this gene for you. Um, How can we obtain good understanding of the views of patients and their families um, and not be swayed by dystopian views from science fiction? Um, And how can we have good regulation and oversight? Um, So lots of things to address. This is what I mean. Most people's views of, of these sorts of things come from dystopian views. From science fiction, um, what's really important is to understand the views of patients and families of patients. Um, the Royal Society uh, was involved in this. to finish, just did a, um, a public engagement exercise where we asked members of the public um, about their views on um, somatic and germline changes. They actually didn't distinguish them really; they thought they were both good. So um, it seems to be mostly. Ethicists who worry about the difference uh, more than the public. Okay, so anyway, I will stop there, just leaving that up.